I'm Jesse of A Polar Night. And I'm Heather of Tangled Me Crafts. And together we are the Not So Crafty Gorgons. So today I actually am going to delve into postmortem photography. And Ooh. yeah, a little, a little spooky spooky when we're about to be coming up on Halloween next month. So. Oh, I like it. Fun fact, I have done no research for this episode, so you are going to be taking the reins. I'm going to be going for this haunted hayride. Fun fact, I've done some research. <laughs> I, was, I was like, are you about to tell me you've also done no research? This is a bullshit episode. Fun fact, I've decided not to do any research. <laughs> and we're just going to wing it. As I'm like holding a paper of your notes. Like, Wait, we actually have notes for you. We need to do research. I just, I just decided to type stuff. It just says ipsum lorem a whole bunch. <laughs> Uh, so a little bit of background about me. I don't, I can never remember what the hell I've told you people and what I haven't. So I started as a photography major. I've done a little bit of history of photography. I didn't know that actually. So oh. I don't think you have told them. <laughs> if you have, I'm a terrible listener. I edit these. <laughs> yeah, so I got accepted to a four-year art college uh, that now no longer exists, which show you shows you how... Um, elevated this institution was um but it was chester college of new england formerly white pines uh started as a two-year college moved turned into a four-year college when i was there uh i did darkroom photography because we still my dog is just running around sorry guys um so we we did darkroom photography primarily and then after i left i actually um became a graphic design major because many of the credits transferred so my uh, associates is in graphic design but I had a bent on photography for a while there um and that was where my interest in postmortem photography started because I was a little spooky babe and I <laughs> yeah, was running around with a camera <laughs> in New England which is like the perfect place for spooky babes to be spooky with cameras oh yeah oh totally <laughs> yeah I was only like an hour from Salem so oh, man. would run around Salem with my camera being a spooky babe um you know we need to do a field trip to New England to do, like, all the haunted tour things and then also go to all the craft shops and then do photography in a cemetery. I would love to do a boudoir shot Ooh. in a cemetery. Denmark would not support that, but he doesn't have to get the boudoir photos. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Who could I give my boudoir photos to? <laughs> Keeping myself. Our Patreons would love them. No. <laughs> Our Patreons would be like, please don't, Heather. We already saw you twerking with a bubble butt. <laughs> We're good. Um, so I know it's okay, there we go. Hi. Okay, so we did we did confirm the pronunciation of <laughs> Daguerreotype. Yeah, there we Daguerreotype. go. Daguerreotype. I t- learned about this in class and it's been a decade so we're gonna go easy on me on pronunciation because again I learn things by reading them not by hearing them on tv so but also like just language there's so many ways I could like guess at pronouncing this and one of them is like type yeah because of spanish and like that g-u I'm like type. yeah so just so you know we will never judge you for mispronouncing 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 anything um because that's just how people because we try not to be ableists yeah so yeah tell us all about this so fun word post-mortem photography came about shortly after the invention of the daguerreotype this was the first publicly available photographic process 
So it was invented in 1839. Prior to the state fair. Yeah. The first state fair. It was fun. And prior to this, if you wanted to be memorialized it was in a painting and it's expensive and kind of reserved for people that were of upper classes or who had the means to save up or you would have one painting done like my my family actually has some older paintings of older family members and things Ooh. yeah do you have any concept of how much less time the photography process was at that time compared to the painting i don't i know that it was much faster though yeah, because I, I know, like, watching the crown when they were painting for Winston Churchill, it was, like, multiple days. Yeah. So numerous sessions. Yeah, it's usually multiple settings, and there would actually be, um, I we have a painting of a family member, and I don't know if it's true, but apparently the painting was done after they were deceased, and they were sitting for it, and I don't know how that worked. So I didn't actually research that. I should have, but... Hmm. I will get back to you in a shrieking in the she shed. So if you want to subscribe to our Patreon and hear my thoughts on painting versus photography, we will do that in a future episode, I think, Ooh, after I do some yes. more research. Yeah. Um, so this was actually based on the camera obscura, which was a room or a box with a pinhole used to project an image for tracing. So that was done uh, during like the Renaissance period. They figured out how to project an image so that they could trace it so that they could make more realistic painting. So that's why mm. you see that ability to actually create something real because they were utilizing tracing as many artists do today. Interesting. This is not controversial. It is literally what good artists oftentimes will do to get a good base so that their proportions are correct. Uh, so the daguerreotype process uses a silver-plated copper sheet treated with iodine that makes it sensitive to light. The image would then be developed with warm mercury vapor, Ooh, which science. had all the exciting dangers of mercury. Which Yeah, poison. Yep. So back then, they actually did know that mercury was dangerous, and people were just like, IDGAF, and they just did it anyway. So basically, like, they didn't use safety equipment generally. Um, it, was, it was just a wild time. It's just a wild time. Like, people just did not care about OSHA because OSHA didn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> it was the 30s. <laughs> uh, precautions were rarely taken to avoid or minimize exposure. Prior to photography, painting and sculptures were the only way to memorialize someone. Photography was still expensive, but it would have been much more widely available, faster process, more affordable, uh, and... I had another point there, but it's fine. So, uh, during that time, it made more sense to get photos after death. Why is that? Well, if you look at older photos from this time, uh, many of the daguerreotypes have a sort of blurred quality to them. This is something that, even though it was more affordable, it you may have only had, like, say, one picture of an individual in their entire life. You may have had one or two photos. Um, but typically, it was still pretty expensive, and the process took so long for that light to do its thing on the plate that you would have movement. No matter how much you tried not to, many of the exposures were multiple minutes to get enough light onto the plate to cause the reaction that they needed to get the image on the plate. So due to that, if someone was already deceased, it was in many ways the perfect opportunity to get them memorialized forever because they're not moving. Also, they're dead. It's your last chance. Families would oftentimes just come up with the money to make this happen at this point. So, fun 
facts, some symptoms of mercury poisoning. Oh. Uh, at a mild exposure level, so mild toxicity, feeling abnormally reclusive, uncomfortable, shy, or insecure in public, slightly irritable with mild emotional ups and downs, feeling that your mind's thoughts are busier than usual, feeling agitated and uncomfortable in your own body for no apparent reason, you know, mercury, uh, chronically fearful or worried, allergies or minor food sensitivities, nutritional deficiencies. Now, moderate. This is interesting. Uh, struggling to maintain a full-time job. <laughs> reduced work hours. Okay. Unable to attend social gatherings. Not reliable in keeping appointments. <laughs> crying spells. I'm like, am I, am I just mercury? Please send my whole life. <laughs> what? <laughs> Headaches and brain fog. Uh, panic attacks. Fibromyalgic-like symptoms. Skin burning, irritable bowel syndrome, leaky gut, <laughs> food sensitivities, candida overgrowth, dysbiosis. I don't know what dysbiosis is. Uh, poor appetite, intolerance to alcohol and coffee. Okay. A lot. Hyperthyroid condition, nutritional. Like, I feel like every symptom in the world is under this mercury-based poisoning. Unable to run errands or go shopping. <laughs> and that's under severe mercury toxic. Interesting. Uh, extreme fear, stress, and exhaustion. Maddening and nonstop compulsive thinking. Suicidal thoughts of dying alone. Uh, severe gut issues. Dizziness and vertigo. Nerve twitches. Chemically sensitive. So people were willingly signing up for this. That's what I'm saying. Like, this is wild. And they were aware of not, like, I mean, because the, the sources that I found said that they were aware not only that mercury poisoning was a thing, but they were aware of the symptoms of mercury. Like, people got treated to whatever capacity they were able to Ooh. for mercury poisoning or diagnosed with it. So, like, they were aware that this was a problem and lay people were just like, but photography is more <laughs> important than my health. <laughs> the art needs. So, memento mori. Yes. Do you know what that is, or have you have you come across the term before? Yes. What's your understanding of it? Putting you on the hot seat. Ha ha ha. So I'm gonna put it down and not look at your notes. So just looking at the Latin roots, my thought process is the memory of death. How close, close am I? Very close. So there's a couple different. Um, translations that I found or like interpretations I guess because it, there's the direct translation and then there's also like but what does it mean obviously right. so it, the sources that I found largely said Latin for remember that you must die and that is also including the like the, the thought process behind it and here's my take on what I think it means or at least what it means to me I should say um I think that it's remembering that not only do you die but you should live. Yes. You know, it's embracing death, but in embracing death, you are embracing life. You know, you are living because you know that someday you will die. We are one of the few animals, and I'm not going to say we're the only animal, because I think, there, I think like elephants and some other animals are aware of the concept of death, and I do think that they are aware that they will die. Yes. Because they have rituals and things. We are among the only animals that have an awareness that we will die. 
and we are among the only animals who can seize our lives in a way because we're aware of death. And so I think that Victorian death culture, while it seems macabre and it kind of is and it's dark, there's a lightness to that dark in terms mm-hmm. of like embracing the now because you know what's coming. I mean, it's yep. coming for all of us. You can't escape it. And I think that our culture has a tendency to minimize that. And that's why this seems kind of unpalatable to many people. I think that there's still people who aren't comfortable with this. Uh, and I think that getting comfortable with this helps us get comfortable with life is my take on it. Um, at least every person that I know in my life who's into this stuff, we're all very much just like, yeah, I, ha- I have to live. I'm here today. So, yes. Um, I also think the Bones and Bobbins podcast covers it a lot too. And I like a lot of the points that Haley Pearson Cox and uh, Natalie Weiss, 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 uh, I forget how to pronounce her name. Um, but I really like how they talk about it too, which is very similar to what you're saying. And I don't think you've even listened to that podcast. I don't actually. So, um, yeah. And honestly, in terms of talking about Victorian times, like, another podcast can I can I reference another podcast I just did okay cool um so I listen to morbid and I know that they're a little controversial and there's some people who don't really like I love them okay I'm gonna put that right out there I love them a lot of criticisms of them I see them out there I don't really agree with them I love them I think they're great they're never gonna listen to this because they're too cool but no (laughs) (laughs) but we get a call from them tomorrow I know and they're just like thanks for mentioning us no um but they're some swag they did bring up, like, you know, they did their Jack the Ripper series, which was, like, a five-part journey into learning about Jack the Ripper, and it was just about how depressing Victorian England was. Um, and there is absolutely an aspect of embracing death during that time because it's, like, well, life sucked. And honestly, <laughs> I hate to say it, but, like, relatable. Like, kind of relatable. Yeah. And stage capitalism feels... Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely not to the same extent, but we do have a lot of people that have food security issues. Um, they, We have a lot of people with addictions. We have a lot of people that are living in abject poverty. Like, we don't have workhouses per se, but we do have, like, large-scale homeless shelters where we shove people on cots, and that's the only thing that they have, or they live in tents. Like, so we do have aspects of our culture that I think are parallel, mm-hmm. um, especially living in Anchorage I think we have oh we see a lot of that stuff it's It's a lot more in our face face. yeah Yeah. in the way that I think it would have been then where you just saw people on the street being absolutely miserable so I do think there is a a, an eye towards things that are maybe a little more unpleasant because we're seeing them all the time um and I think that's part of where that culture comes from but for me personally I'm I'm a stupid optimist and I like to think about like okay but like what can I embrace today so also, speaking of that time frame, thinking about women and women's rights and how women's health care was treated and, like, the parallels to today with abortion rights. And I had a conversation with a loved one recently about how she is, at this point, just not getting in a relationship because she is so terrified of the what-ifs mm-hmm. and feeling like, even if I love this person, if for whatever reason I have to have an abortion... And she was like, I could go to another state where it is accessible because she's not currently in a state where there's an option. And she was like, but I could still be prosecuted when I come home. Mm -hmm. And so it's like that level. And I don't think people think about that. 
I also think about how if I was a woman in the Victorian era, I would have been going to get treatment for hysteria all the time. Well, and there was, like, all these stories, too, of, like, you know, women will go to the workhouses, and for one thing, like, they were talked about this on Morbid, and I, I did some research after the fact, too, because I was just so blown away. Because I didn't realize in a workhouse you're not allowed to have you or any of your belongings in there during the day you have to pay to stay there for the night and then you are out for the day you are working you are doing whatever you need to do to get your fare to stay for the night and that's that so many women would get into really horrible abusive relationships for a place to stay so they didn't have to go stay in the workhouse because the one person abusing them was better than carrying all their stuff on them all day Mm -hmm. and being abused by multiple people while staying yeah while staying in the poorhouse so it just it's crazy to think of what they went through so that's kind of the culture that this was happening at the same time as um you know where people were faced with death people were faced with poverty people were faced with um just things that many people see as unthinkable we're a little bit on the cusp of it I feel like people that live in cities I think see it a little bit more where we're faced a little more and even then my life is still fairly sheltered from it I would say yeah um getting back on topic instead of talking about <laughs> capitalism <laughs> we always come back to capitalism don't it's we weird. <laughs> it's almost like it's our whole lives that's wild what? so i'm an economist <laughs> i'm not people have always thought about death though i mean it makes sense we're aware of it and we've always had memento mori of some kind of another but during the victorian era memento mori trinkets became into vogue so like death photography and having like lockets with hair hair art was really big which i encourage you to go online and look for victorian hair art some of it is shockingly beautiful and you can actually buy pieces on ebay i didn't realize how much of it there was that for just a couple hundred dollars you can just buy a piece of victorian hair art when thinking about well and i've seen pieces where it's like flowers made out of hair which is wild, like, the sculpting that they can do with it. Um, but also, like, that kind of, like, going back to the science, like, that genetic hand-me-down mm-hmm. of, like, having that genetic material. Um, and I think about, just, like, talk about a true heirloom piece with a Victorian hair art piece. Woo. Yeah, and at some point I actually want to do, like, a hair art episode. It's been one of the things that's on my list is because there's some other cultures where they do things like women will use grandma and mom's hair in their in their hairstyles um and and use that like after they they cut their hair once and they use it in their updo but they'll also take mom's hair and grandma's hair and they will have this hair piece that is a multi-generational hair piece and it feels a little like that in terms of like you know inheriting like you said the genetic legacy fun fact human hair disgusts me and it's actually like a phobic (laughs) trigger for me like I start like internally gagging and people who've been around me when I've had reactions to human hair that touches me are very aware of it um are you gonna be able to sit through that episode? I don't know I, like <laughs> as you were talking I was like oh, fuck I'm gonna have to do something to navigate I'm gonna have to be drunk or like, <laughs> take some illicit things because I don't Heather's know. green right now she's I'm like, like I'm like clenched like <laughs> white knuckling myself right now I'm so uncomfortable <laughs> which don't ask me how I can deal with animal fiber and fur. Just, we're not it's having... different honestly I get it that is, hair, is. 
hair feels kind of dirty. I get that. Yeah. Um, so the other thing were death masks. Mm. So they would cast the decedent's face in wax and then have a cast of the decedent's face to either make art with or to just have the wax cast, uh, which I think is as upsetting for me as the hair thing is for Heather. Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't, I would, because I think about, like, if somebody made a doll out of that, right, like a puppet, I would not be able to be in the same room as that. So here's the thing. You know I love puppetry. I'm a puppetry weirdo. I love yes, Henson. Henson. I love yep. Muppets. Like, I'm all about, and people that do, like, small, I like the cute, cuddly, fuzzy ones. Stuff like Punch and Judy and, like, the older circus era stuff freaks me. The Like, I hate Punch and Judy. They freak me out in a, like, very visceral way. So I understand, yeah. Like, I know it doesn't make sense. It just, it freaks me out. Uh, it freaks me out in the way that clowns freak me out, honestly. Um, and I'm going to have people that are into clowning that are going to message us angrily. I, so fun fact, I have a great aunt and uncle who were professional clowns with one of the big circuses. I'm not going to say which one. Um, but, like, I learned balloon animals because of that. That's awesome. That family heritage piece, yeah. I really appreciate the art form, and I appreciate the amount of work and the showmanship. It's just not my jam. It's just, the aesthetic freaks me out, and I just kind of keep my distance. Uh, Industrialization led to our current situation, as well as, at the time, overcrowded conditions in cities, diseases spreading quickly. Uh, child mortality was particularly high. Like, oh, yeah. People just had a lot of kids. They had kids working. Uh, obviously, this pre-labor laws. Um, they just didn't have very good hygiene because they couldn't because it was in cities. People were, like, pouring pee and poop out windows. Like, it just, it wasn't a, it wasn't a great time. Like, it's raining, <laughs> So, death was basically everywhere, and it was handled at home. And it was not hidden away. So, like, yeah, there were funeral homes. There were mortuaries. There were these things. They were expensive. Poor people were not utilizing these serv- services. And if someone died, like, honestly, like, they just throw them in a hole. Like, or the river. Yeah, basically. Like, it was just, like, you're out. But, like, if they had a family, it was handled at home. Um, so, with photography because that's what we're actually talking about sorry <laughs> no it's okay <laughs> i'm doing it too where i'm like i'm all over the place tangent, tangent. just talking about the things surrounding it i think is really important anyways and everything circles back to our present situation and thinking about how we relate to it so i think that's fine in talking about photography lots of it's interesting to look at them and there's a couple of face book groups out there which I encourage you to go look for them if you're interested in this topic further there's a lot of really cool knowledgeable people um but there's you can see in the photos there's a thought towards the posing and a thoughtfulness of composition that you didn't see in other photography of the time in the same way so like if someone was alive and they were posing for a photo they would pose in whatever way was easiest for them to keep the position so usually you'd see someone standing with like a hand on a hip to brace themselves and that was a pretty typical position with death photography you could have people you know they'd be laying down or they'd be seated in such a way so as to hide the fact that they were deceased um they would do makeup to hide that they were deceased sometimes they would even paint eyes on the backs of their eyelids 
and make and it's crazy to look at these photos because you can see it if you're looking for it but if you're not looking for it at first glance you can't tell that you're looking at someone who's deceased and there's people that their entire photography education is on identifying and um pointing out aspects of the photography so if you go on the facebook groups there's people that are very very well versed and like they'll be like no that person's alive no that person's deceased because there's some of them look it's very very hard to tell it makes me think of how crucial like the science behind the rigor mortis piece is because there is that window where it's like super stiff and then it transitions to the window of flexibility. Yeah. And then back into the rigidity. Yeah. So, like, they would have to know that timing. And the photographers absolutely did. Because there were photographers that basically specialized in this type of photography. This was all that they did. This was their job. They would get the call that someone had died. They would know the time of death. And then they would show up when it was time to do the photos. Or they would get everything prepped. The body would, you know, get to a position where they could do it. And then they'd pose them and then take their photos and then those would be the oftentimes the only photo that the family would ever have, in particular of infants and small children. I was going to say, I can't imagine a child staying still long enough for a good picture, so I imagine most... Yeah, so especially, like, that was one of those situations where they... With kids, I would imagine it was harder emotionally, but technically easier yeah because you can make them look like they're sleeping and that's oftentimes what they would do is they would just have a baby or a child laying down and they would just make them appear as if they were sleeping also I noticed like with children there tended to be more acknowledgement of them being deceased in photos so there I saw when I was doing research I saw a lot more in caskets I saw a lot more of them on um like body boards I think is what they're called like where they would just be laid out and it was very tires or whatever yeah like where they were just obviously laid out like they were obviously deceased and it was almost like there was just more of that I felt like with adults they had more like trying to stand seat um make it look like they were alive and with children I just saw more of them looking like they were sleeping or looking like they were absolutely deceased um a few pictures I saw were like in the cases of twins uh they would have the alive twin pose next to the deceased twin oh man yeah which is like a psychological stance. super heavy just super super heavy so like i said you know the longer exposure times it just kind of made decedents good photography subjects and so these were some of the best examples of photography at the time uh they would play with props they would add you know, there'd be good backgrounds. There'd be just things that you, you could see these in other photography. And as the um, exposure times got shorter and shorter and the process got less expensive, you see more of a convergence of the two types of photography where you would see, you know, it was harder to tell the difference. Uh, But especially early on, you can see a clearer difference in a deceased subject versus an alive subject because just the the photos of the deceased are just much clearer, crisper, and they could Mm -hmm. really take their time with that composition. So in talking about that, a lot of that was happening in England, honestly, like because that's where just so much of that Victorian culture was centered. But I did want to touch on some of the stuff in American culture and specifically Appalachian death culture, which is a little more modern. Uh, Many of the things about... Uh, Appalachian death culture were happening as late as I want to say like 2000 it was definitely happening through the 90s because uh, Shelby Lee Adams was in 
um, Kentucky taking photos at that time. So there is, let's see, I want to talk a little bit about Shelby Lee Adams. So one of my favorite pictures that I've ever seen is the home funeral. It was taken in 1990 by Shelby Lee Adams. I had seen, and I have done so much research to try to figure out what museum I saw his work at. I want to say it was Smith. I could totally be wrong because at that point in my life, I was going to a lot of different art museums. Um, But this is an interesting picture. It's a composition that shows two rooms of a home during a home funeral. And it just shows that like they would lay out the body on a body board um, in oftentimes in the living room. And they would have this board that was used for all the family members. um, And they would serve food and people would kind of come in. They would do the washing of the body at home. And I would encourage you to look up some things about, uh, I'm going to touch on some of it, but some of the things about Appalachian death culture are just absolutely fascinating with the ways that it was handled because this was one of those places where people were still handling death at home when other people were then primarily relying on mortuaries and funeral homes and, and professionals to sort of hide death away. Um, to, to the point that culture in the Appalachians to this day is still very open about death um, from the little bits. I wanted to try to talk to someone. So if anyone out there is listening and is from those areas and can speak to some of this and how it feels today, um, I would love to hear from you. Because what I was reading was that those attitudes about death not being hidden away are still very present. It's just that now things are typically usually handled outside of the home instead of the most some of the most rural areas I'd imagine they still do home funerals but for the most part it is now handled outside the home but the attitudes have persisted I was trying to find it but there was a quote about the Appalachian Mountains being older than um even dinosaurs and like just the carbon dating of the earth in the mountains and how people feel in the Appalachian Mountains. It's like just the existence in that area is spiritual, right? And so I wonder how much the landscape influences or did influence the death culture. You know what I mean? I can actually speak a little bit to that from my research is there's little pockets in the Appalachians that are little tiny towns. And there's places where people chose to be very insular um there's a couple of communities that are known for instance um and again this is not everywhere i want to put that out there that this is known instances of insular communities with inbreeding um i don't want to perpetuate stereotypes that's not everybody who lives in the appalachians and if anyone wants to come at me for that then i will be the first one to tell you that i don't like the stereotypes but there are instances of that happening to the point that it was intentional for those people to live off on their own, um, including the blue people of Kentucky, which is one of my favorite little. I love learning about genetics and little tiny genetic oh, communities. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. So, like that one gentleman who carried the gene, and then his he married someone, and she was not a blue person, and then they went on to have like a whole blue family. I think some of them are still alive today, if I'm remembering correctly. Heather, who has the phone? Oh, <laughs> bluegrass, y'all. Um, 
but there's some little pockets where this was just so common and that's why I'm not ruling out that there's places that still do it today I would almost guarantee that there's people that still do it because there's like people that still live in technically closed mining towns mm-hmm. older folks that just will not leave because that is where they have lived their whole lives and that is where they are going to stay and more power to them for not leaving their homes um so to give our patreon people not our patreon our listeners some background the blue fugates is they're the family living in the hills of kentucky starting in the 19th century uh or also known as the blue people of kentucky they are known for being connect carriers of a genetic trait that led to the blood disorder methemoglobinemia methemoglobinemia that sounds right. <laughs> I was like, that one sounds the right. skin to appear blue. Um, the originators were Martin Fugate and Elizabeth Smith. And then their final head was Benjamin Smith. And he, it doesn't say if he's still alive or not. Yeah, I think when I did my, because again, this is like a weird little niche interest that I have is I like learning about like closed Amish Amish communities and the ways that, you know, the genetic disorders that have come out of that, as well as like little communities like this, which are just small instances of insular communities that have just kind of collapsed in on themselves genetically a little bit. Um, And that's an example of it where I think that they did have other people come into the family, but because that gene was just so strong and it had been in that area for so long that there was just a whole family. Yeah. Um, So they had some interesting, um, what would I say? Uh, Rituals and ideas surrounding death. So if the family owned a clock, it was actually stopped at the time of death. So this served hmm. two reasons, two purposes. It recorded the time of death, and it was because when you die, time's done for you. Like, that's it. Interesting. Um, and I'm going to include uh, in our show notes the link to the site that I'm getting this info from. Um, any mirrors in the house were going to be covered, and that was because when the spirit left the body, it was believed if it saw itself, it would remember the world it was leaving behind, and it wouldn't want to go, so it wouldn't move on to the next. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is a pretty common, like, the idea of the world between worlds is a super common idea across all people, you know, that, like, not wanting to move on idea that we hear from, like, psychics and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing was that, like, if... Uh, a person attending to the deceased saw themselves in the mirror that they would be the next one to die. So while the decedent was in the house, you would cover the mirror so that people would not see themselves and then die. Ooh, spooky. Which begs the question, like, what happens if you have a really shiny spoon? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Good question. Hmm. Or if you see yourself in, like, water. Oh. Does that count? Does that count? I don't know. Um, pennies or nickels were placed over the closed eyes of the dead. Um. Don't like that. Yeah, and it doesn't give a reason. It just says that that was done. I just don't like physical money. It just grosses me out. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I don't think the decedent cared, though. I don't think they were worried about germs. True. Valid point. <laughs> um, and if the mouth wouldn't close, a handkerchief was tied around the head. So I know that, like, I don't know where I'm getting that imagery from, but when I think of, like, uh... A funeral in the hills I absolutely think of like a handkerchief being tied around the head and my family is from 
um, farming communities in the Berkshires. So I would imagine, and I can't speak to this exactly, but I'd imagine back before funeral homes and stuff, and even when there were, my family was probably rural enough, they probably engaged in many of these practices themselves or similar things, because when you have a family with 13 children, um, I can't imagine that you were doing much else. So, uh... I, I, I'm sure that somewhere I have a family photo or two. That probably is where I'm getting this from. Okay, so houses were actually built with a funeral window or a funeral door. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. I've never heard of that. So so that you could slide the coffin into the part of the house where the parlor or the front room was located. Logical. Yeah. Very logical. It's wild to think that, like, the culture was such that death was built into aspects of the home. Yeah. So, yeah, just that touches a little bit upon, um, you know, death in America. And where it's at now. And where it's at now, yeah. So we don't really... Keep it in the home at all. No, and a lot of... So I would say that most people aren't doing death photography. Many people are opposed to it. I've noticed that my... Some of my family was okay with death photography. Some are not. My family does take pictures of decedents in their coffins uh it is kept with the immediate family only uh and it is done at the wake uh i'm and it's not done for everyone it depends on like my mom did it with her mom and i believe that some of my grandmother's sisters also have there's some pictures of them in their coffins as well but we don't share them yeah so my husband's side of the family they will take selfies with the decedents and post that on social media. They'll take tons of pictures of just the decedent. Um, I don't think anybody in my family has or does, but I also have not been to many funerals because my family is very... (laughs) We're immortal. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, but there's also, like, the rifts in the family where it's like, oh, I'm very estranged from this person. I'm not going. Mm -hmm. So I have not been to many funerals in general. And another thing that I want to touch on, because we have already talked about child death. So I, like I said, my family, I come from farming folks a couple generations back. Hilltown farming folks. Um... There's this idea that people were somehow detached from the deaths of their children, which may have been true for some people, but I can speak to my family's history with that. Whereas I think that we like to think of older folks as being more stoic or having less emotions about things. I think they had the emotions. In fact, I know that they did. My great-grandmother, there are stories about, you know, she had multiple losses, lost many babies. Um, She went on to have 13 live children. But they also had a farm to run. They had stuff to do. They were poor. They didn't have a lot. They, the idea of the stiff upper lip and the keeping going, they kind of had to because she had other kids she had to support. That doesn't mean she didn't have feelings. Yeah. And there's this thought that, like, people, clearly the fact that people took pictures meant they, and they were so carefully and lovingly posed, meant that there were feelings there. Like, this is their way of processing through that. So while we don't have the same amount of child death as we did then, you know, our mortality rates for children have at least for now, which, you know, certain certain laws might unfortunately be changing how we see um, infant death, infant death and, and uh, maternal mortality. Unfortunately, America has 
unfortunately very high rates, um, higher than they should be for the resources that we have at least. Um, I think that there's this idea that people were separated from it, and I just I think that there were absolutely the same feelings. I think people just had to get on with their lives. They had other kids to take care of, uh, and uh, yeah. I think that was their way of dealing with just having so much loss. And today we see that in organizations like Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep where we still do the same things. Hospitals will oftentimes offer up a memory box for moms who have to go home with empty arms. They will have a little box with a hat and, you know, footprints and photos. And they will call in an organization like Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep and they will get pictures and things. So this is not something, this is something that binds us to the past. It's not something that makes us different. We just don't talk about it as much. I think it was very present. You know, everyone during those days knew someone who had lost not one but many children. It was a fact of life. And now when you have someone like that in your life, they have lost one child. They have not lost six, seven, eight. And not everyone knows someone directly. You may know of someone, but you may not be like their best friend now Mm -hmm. because it's not as common as it was. Sure. But I wanted to touch on that because there does seem to be this idea of people in the past didn't have feelings about this. They absolutely did. That's why they did this. Yeah, well, my grandma um, lost a son my uncle Mark and they were in the steel mill community in Ohio Youngstown and it's interesting because I think about like the fact that I know about him right like and he died I believe at birth um but he was named he was very much loved very much cared for my grandma still talks about him, still talks about the impact of losing him. You can still feel that sadness, even though she's not, like, openly weeping, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that given the conditions of their time, they weren't allowed to express the emotion, but they still yeah. had the emotion. Yeah. And so it, you know, and I think about men even and the evolution of men's feelings and how we had back in you know ancient roman days they could express emotions by having fights and like having sex right and like being very physical and like writing odysseys and all that fun stuff and then progressed to like 1940s 1950s or early 1900s and it was just like no you're a worker Mm -hmm. so yeah i definitely think that i would agree with you that it's not that they didn't have the feelings, but they weren't given that space to express them. Yeah, and I would I would guarantee that, like, death photography was probably the opportunity that they had to work through some of these things. Because at the end of the day, you had to go back to work. I mean, yeah. that's what it, what it came down to is, you know, if, if you were in a farming community, you had to get back. If you were in a, in a mining community, you had to get back into the mines. Like, you didn't get bereavement leave. You worked through it while working, and that this was the opportunity of, like, posing your children or posing your loved one, getting those photos and taking that time with the body. And that was very, very important. So while to many of us, like, I think... For me, it doesn't bother me because I've lived in a community where the family would wash bodies and would take care of bodies. And, and in my family, you know, we oftentimes would be there right up when the opportunity presented itself for an expected death. We would be in the room with, with the person and, and talk to them and, and be a part of that passing on process. But for many people, they're separated from that. So that seems scary to them. And I, it's important to note that this is all a part of that 
grieving process and was a, a very important part and maybe oftentimes the only part that they got to really take the time and experience so um it seems dark it seems spooky but it's really just kind of a, a a facet of the human experience and i think it's important to acknowledge that this was all very emotional yeah so talking about now and present would you take pictures of your loved ones like of if something happened with Lewis, like how would you approach that? Do you think if it was someone that I felt like I had the right to like Lewis, you know, if it was mm-hmm. my husband, I absolutely would get pictures. It would depend on the nature of death, which let's face it, it's my husband. He's going to die doing something stupid. Um, <laughs> but if he's in a position for us to do that, then absolutely. Um, I think that he, we've talked about, it, I think he wants to be cremated, but I would absolutely get pictures of him beforehand. I feel like that's important to have. And I think that Victorian death photography shows this is a part of our cultural legacy and even though you know we're probably not going to have direct descendants I think it's important for other family members to have things like that Mm -hmm. um I find like when I come across things like that in my own family pictures I find it interesting and important so I would I would definitely do it would you Ooh, good question um I think about my own process with grief and I think in the moment I would not want to do it, but after the fact I would regret not getting it. It's one of those things that I would definitely put the photos away and not look at them for a long time. Yep. And I know that from experience because I have pictures of my grandmother and it took me until last year to look at them. Um, and she died when I was 12. So... Yeah, because I just think about how I handle grief and loss, and I'm one of those people who, when it happens, I don't want to make a big hurrah about it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to make a big deal about my feelings about it, and I don't want it to be about me. And so I don't know how I would navigate even taking the pictures or getting the pictures taken without dealing with those feelings of, like, selfishness. That's fair. So... Ooh, fun, fun topic. <laughs> so I actually wanted to end this by asking our listeners to chime in, send us some messages, let us know, comment on Insta, uh, let us know what your thoughts are on death, on photography, on what does your culture do? Because I know that there's cultures that do every range of things that we could say, you know, there's still cultures where they process everything at home and you just handle everything within the family there's other cultures where taking photos is very taboo and you just absolutely never would do that so I'd love to hear you chime in on your personal thoughts the thoughts of you know your culture that you live within and kind of like if you have any history relating to this or if you have any um death photography from uh back in the Victorian era that you have a personal connection to that we would love to hear from you yeah that would be amazing Cool. Well, thanks, everybody, and thank you, Jesse, for taking us on this journey. This was fascinating. Um, I will say, if you guys choose to Google the Victorian death photography, some of it is very overwhelming. Yep. Um, so just be, like, emotionally mindful of that, of your space, your spoons, all that stuff, because it can be heavy. So... Cool. Well, thanks, everybody. Have a fabulous day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Not So Crafty Gorgons. 
We really appreciate your support and we couldn't do any of this without you, our listeners. Cover art is by Marina Soul Art. Music is by Naveed, who is Amin Me on Fiverr. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or rating on whatever platform that you prefer. And for exclusive content with the Gorgons, including tutorials, swag, and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash notsocraftygorgons. For episode previews and other updates, follow us on Instagram at not underscore so underscore crafty underscore gorgons. Thank you.